You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters, each week we're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Kerry Lee Harding. Coming up on Earth Matters, we take a look at the Aboriginal Carbon Fund and we find out what the fund is doing to assist some Aboriginal local traditional owners with savannah burning across some parts of northern Australia. It's a new way of caring for country using old techniques and new ways to work with TOs to reduce carbon emissions by conducting traditional small, cool burns across savannah country and as a result minimising large, unpredictable wildfires that may occur, having a damaging impact on biodiversity on country. Coming up soon, you'll hear from Lisa McMurray from Caritas Australia, one of the partners working closely with the Aboriginal Carbon Fund. But first, you'll hear from Rowan Foley, General Manager of the Aboriginal Carbon Fund, who starts off by explaining what the fund is all about. We're a little not-for-profit company established seven years ago. We're 100% Indigenous employment. Uh, we're all blackfellas that work in the company. We've got whitefellas that work around us as advisors and associates. But we're Aboriginal people uh, developing uh, carbon economies on Aboriginal land. How does it work in real terms, developing uh, a carbon economy on Aboriginal lands? Well, we're selling, for the first time, you can invest in the management of Aboriginal land. You can do that by buying our carbon credit. So um, by buying a carbon credit, uh, you're buying a product of the traditional owners or looking after their country. So how would that work for me, I guess, as a business operator? How would I come in and do that, Rowan? Well, you'd say that your business is better than everyone else's business because you support traditional owners and you support climate change. So your business would be carbon neutral and uh, you get your carbon credits from the traditional owners. So uh, you're investing in Australia, so invest in my company. Take me back to the very beginning, please, Rowan. How was this uh, first seed first planted? Well, it was between Kevin Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme coming in and Julia Gillard's carbon farming initiative. So it was in between those two, and... Traditional owners own so much land in Australia that carbon farming could be undertaken on. And we weren't at the negotiation table. We were nowhere to be found. You know, we had all these white lawyers and all these white coordinators and all, you know, all these, all these you know, people are running around. And no one said, mate, you've got all this Aboriginal land. You've got this big new policy. Are you talking to blackfellas? So I said, oh, bugger that. And I called a big regional workshop and I got all the blackfellas together and I said, hey, down in Canberra, they're doing this new big carbon thing and, and we should have a say in what's going on. And everyone went, yeah, yeah, we should. So we had a big regional meeting in Alice Springs and all the land council bosses came there. And we had a Senate delegation and we went down to Canberra and we spoke to them about you know, carbon farming because it's, you know, it's, it happens on Aboriginal land. And uh, so we decided to, to do something about it. And why is it important for business owners from Australia to go into business with, if you like, with Aboriginal traditional owners? Why is it important to invest in carbon farming? Well, because we all live on what, this thing called the planet and we all need to do something about climate change. And so with the Paris Agreement, everyone's trying to keep the, the temperatures, temperature change down to 1.5 degree. Uh, at, you know, that'd be a good thing, but two degrees at most. And so the whole world has decided to act. 
And so what we're doing is a form of uh, action on climate change. It's, it's carbon abatement. We're uh, reducing the amount of greenhouse gases going up into the atmosphere uh, by having small cool, cool burns in the savannah country and stopping or you know, mitigating or minimising the large wildfires that rage across northern Australia every year. So we're, we're doing our bit for climate change and uh, so can everybody else. You would have spoken to many different uh, traditional owners from right across northern Australia and other parts of Australia as well, Rowan. How are they feeling about climate change and what have TOs noticed over the years uh, in terms of the change of country and uh, waterways uh, due to climate change? There certainly have been changes and the biggest change has been wildfires. So for a long, long time, fire was well managed in this country. And it's only quite recently that we've had these out-of-control wildfires and now we have this savannah burning methodology that we can start to control wildfires again. And those wildfires, they, they damage rock art and they uh, damage the wildlife and they're no good for country. And it's never been the way to have big out-of-control wildfires in this country. That's, a, that's an artificial state. Now, there are, there are other changes as well that people uh, note. Uh, so, you know, the billabongs are getting a little bit more salty if you get salt intrusion. But, you know, the main thing really, you know, across northern Australia, so I'm only talking about, you know, far north Queensland, uh, you know, which includes Cape York, Gulf of Carpentaria, Top End and the Kimberley, is, is getting the fires under control. So that's the biggest threat. And, uh, you know, if we can get the fires under control, through carbon farming, then that's a great outcome. And tell me more about the Savannah Project. How does that actually work across northern Australia? By getting in and burning the country when it's nice and cool, still a little bit wet, you're only going to have cool fires, little fires that only emit small amounts of greenhouse gas. And then you measure that against the amount of greenhouse gases that would normally be emitted when you have big wildfires coming across the country, you know, from October, November when those fires rage across the country and you have large emissions of greenhouse gases. And you simply measure the two from the, from the small to the big. That's, that's how you generate carbon credit. What differences are you seeing here? And are you noticing uh, more regeneration, of course, uh, of country and more wildlife coming back into these areas? Yes, we are. So the habitats that the wildlife depend on, they can't be destroyed Every 12 months, you've got to maintain them. You've got to look after them. And if you've got big wildfires coming through, burning down everybody's houses, like the wildlife house, it's no good. And so the wildlife we're finding, the biodiversity on country has increased. Uh, you know, but there's also other outcomes as well, about bush tucker, about plant foods. Once again, if you're getting big fires coming in, taking out all the plant food, there's nothing to eat. So you know, being on country means also having healthy country, which also means having a good fire management regime, which means cool burns. So I'm guessing we're coming up to the fire season towards the end of the year, October, November. Is that right, Rowan? That's right. And every time there's a fire now, the first question that people should be saying is, and this is down south as much as, as it is up north, why didn't they go and burn that country in the wintertime? Why do they wait until it's the summertime we have all these wildfires? What's going on? Because that's how it used to be managed for you know, 65,000 years, according to archaeology. Now, in the last 200 years, for some reason or another, we've decided to think that having big out-of-control wildfires is a good thing because we don't get in and burn enough country in the wintertime. 
So how does this play out in real terms for your organisation, the Aboriginal Carbon Fund? Do you work off a schedule or a roster with the TOs as to when uh, you allocate the different uh, burning times, Rowan? The, the traditional owners know what they're doing. They don't need to, you know, we don't need to go in there and tell, tell blackfellas how to burn country. But what we need to do is tell the whitefellas in, in Sydney and Melbourne that they can buy their carbon credits. You know, it's the whitefellas that need educating, not the blackfellas. So we, we speak with the corporates and we go, you can build a meaningful relationship with the traditional owners through buying their carbon credit. And they all go, really? And we go, yeah, you can. Rowan, what parts of Northern Australia is this program very active? There's 32 savannah burning projects run by Aboriginal people in across Northern Australia, so Cape York, Top End and Kimberley, 32 projects. And how are TO's first feeling, I guess, when you come to them with uh, your initial idea? Uh, are they fully behind the idea? Do they need some convincing? I guess they wouldn't need convincing because they know they're doing the right thing. The traditional lines have been doing this for 65,000 years. The, the, the rangers have been doing this for, you know, quite a while now. The, the new idea is that it's a business now, so it's an agribusiness, that you can, you can buy and sell carbon credits on the, on the market. So that's, that's the new concept. Um, and also around core values or core benefits, um, you know, making sure that you know people's connection to country is respected, and that it's indigenous to indigenous. And that's the other main key project that we're working on, is the the core benefits framework, where it's traditional owners working with traditional owners, rather than the white experts coming in telling blackfellas what to do all the time. We're a bit sick of that. We're a little bit over that now. You know, the white experts can stay down in Sydney and Melbourne. We're using the black experts and working with each other. And this is a new concept. This is a revolutionary new concept that we're bringing in and we're importing it from the rest of the world. It's about 10 years old and it's based on this concept called South to South. And we've rebadged it and called it Indigenous to Indigenous. And tell me more about other parts of the world that are doing such things. Um, What countries have you been looking at to follow their lead, if you like? Well, I just came back from Canada. They want to follow our lead. Um, they want to create the Indigenous Climate Fund in British Columbia. They love the work that we're doing here and they want to recreate <coughs> my company over there uh, and work with First Nations uh, mob over there because, you know, they're sick of whitefellas coming in telling us what to do as well. First Nations are looking at doing exactly the same thing that we're doing. They'll probably replicate our company about 90% if, if they get the money and they want to control the carbon farming work that they're doing themselves. So... Um, if we're successful, we'll be the first company in Australia to export to export a product or service outside of Australia. And you just mentioned there a little bit before that it's quite revolutionary what you're doing. It is indeed. How does that feel for you personally, for you and your team, uh, Rowan, uh, doing such great things that haven't been done before? We've never seen this in Australia before. Well, we, we've never seen South to South. You know, I mean, there are many people doing carbon projects, but the whitefellas need to get out of the way. That's the problem. In our industry, there's too many whitefellas. So what's revolutionary is South to South. So it's a concept around, and we rebadged it, Indigenous to Indigenous. That's a revolutionary concept where it's Aboriginal people working with Aboriginal people. Um, and, you know, a lot of white fellas won't like it because we're saying, look, fellas, you can stay in Sydney and Melbourne. We've got the skills. We've got the experience. And, you know, with a bit of training, a little bit of support, we're going to be working with each other now, um, and that's a revolutionary new concept that's coming through. So you're finding that some non-Indigenous folk are maybe uh, not too happy with the new way of doing things in this country? 
Well, the, well, you know, the white expert going up there to the Aboriginal communities, telling them what to do, has been the way for the last 30, 40 years. That's right, yeah. And now, and now we're saying, well, actually, guess, guess what? We're going to catch up with the rest of the world because that model is outdated. And the rest of the world does south to south, and we're going to be doing that down here as well. You know, and like I, I'd never heard of that concept before. I can tell you, the, tell you the, the exact day I heard that concept, I nearly fell off the chair. I was going, what? And I said, how, how long has this been around for? And I said, oh, about 10 years. I said, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, no, the rest of the world has been doing this for ages, Rowan. Where have you been? I was like, Jesus, mate, what, is, what do they do? And they go, oh, well, they work with each other. I'm like, oh, okay, can we do that in Australia? They went, yeah. So that's what we're doing. Sounds quite simple, doesn't it, really? It, do, it does. I don't know why we're not doing it. No idea. No idea why we're not doing it. But I'll tell you what, when I first heard about it, I nearly fell off my chair. I thought, great, let's use it, and we are. What does the future look like now for the Aboriginal Carbon Fund? Where would you like to see your non-for-profit company uh, into the future, say 10, 20 years from now, Rowan? Oh, just supporting people and projects. You know, we're more around industry development, uh, getting the tools and the industry pillars in place to enable traditional owners to control their own futures. And I think that's, you know, we've just, you know, we've had lots of uh, well-meaning non-Indigenous people come in and want to lead projects. What's happening now is that we're developing the tools and the the concepts and the models to actually enable Indigenous self-determination. So, you know, the mob doing it themselves. And that's that's what's been missing. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Kerry Lee Hardy. And you just heard there from Rowan Foley, General Manager of the Aboriginal Carbon Fund. And joining me next on the program is Lisa McMurray from Caritas Australia, one of the partners working closely with the fund. And I first started off by asking Lisa about her role. Well, we're a partner with Aboriginal Carbon Fund. We have five different regions that uh, we work with and one of those regions is Australia and we have eight different partners and one of our partners is Aboriginal Carbon Fund. So I've been working with them and our team here to develop a measurement tool for the core benefits of carbon farming. And how does that work in real practical terms then, Lisa? Well, that's an interesting question. We're still in the design stage, so we've built a framework that we can talk about and we are now coming up with some tools and processes for how it will actually be implemented by the rangers in remote communities. So what that means is there are two different markets where you can sell your carbon and if you can prove that there are all these wonderful core benefits associated with um, strength in culture and uh, employment opportunities and healthy communities, you can actually sell that to corporates and they'll pay more for their carbon than on the government auction. So that's why we're coming up with this measurement process that allows rangers themselves to do that verifying and and, um, measurement and then uh, get more money on the voluntary market for their carbon. How much money are we talking uh, when it comes down to the bottom line, Lisa? Well, look, you have to do the maths because I'm not very good at that. Oh, no, my maths ain't very good either. (laughs) But what we're talking about is um, a one Australian carbon credit unit gets sold on the government auction for about 13 bucks. And for um, a corporate, they'll pay up to about $20, 18 to $20 for that carbon unit. So when you're talking about, you know, thousands of 
carbon units being sold, you, yeah, you're talking about a big difference if, if you're able to verify your core benefits. Okay. And this is an mm. ongoing, sustainable way for Aboriginal communities to bring in an income that is totally reliant on what they do themselves. Let's talk about the development of the core benefits framework. How does that work? Well, we have uh, been um, talking with our partner, Aboriginal Carbon Fund, for um, pretty much this conversation started earlier this year when uh, I shared with the general manager, Rowan Foley, uh, about my trip to India at the end of last year and and just what... um, international development agencies do as our bread and butter when it comes to evaluation and it really sparked for him an idea of you know how different it is in international development and how we evaluate to what happens in remote aboriginal communities and the difference really is that you know we have a whole lot of principles and standards that we follow in the international development sector and the core principles when we're uh, evaluating projects is empowering people to be part of that process. So it's very, we're very mindful of building opportunities for our partners in country who often are implementing the projects that we're um, supporting. We're, you know, we're building opportunities for our partners and people in communities to really be part of that evaluation process and often to drive elements of that evaluation process. And we know from all of the research into international development that the more people are involved in... Um, evaluating their own programs, the much better result we'll get. So that's quite different to what's happened in um, remote communities and a lot of projects uh, in Aboriginal Australia. So we thought, well, let's you know test this and let's bring aboard some of these uh, key principles like capacity building and, and empowerment um, and also rigour and credibility. There's a whole lot of ways that you know, we make sure that um, the data we're collecting is actually credible you know, so we're building all of this into a framework that uh, will measure those core benefits. But the, the absolute key to this is that it's Indigenous-led. So one of the things we talk about in the development sector is a south-to-south approach. And this really moves away from uh, evaluation or other development processes being top-down and driven by the north. And, you know, when I say the north, we're the north. The Western world is the north, even mm. though we're the Western world. Mm. But, you know, pretty much most development is very much top-down. So there's been a bit of a backlash against that, and that's um, a south-to-south movement that really sees people from developing countries who are, you know, more skilled, um, as learned as anyone from the north, driving a lot of those development processes. So we've sort of taken that idea and built it into our framework and put Aboriginal people in the driving seat. And let's talk about putting Aboriginal people in the driving seat. Uh, How positive do you think the Aboriginal Carbon Fund is for local traditional owners uh, who are involved? Well, we have a workshop in Cairns where we're really testing some of this. So we've, at the moment, you know, we have a very academic um, philosophy underpinning it. So we've come up with, like, different tools and uh, processes. They're all very much in mock format at the moment. We'll be working um, and workshopping these ideas with... Aboriginal rangers up in Cairns. So that's going to be, you know, our opportunity to see how people, um, you know, the appeal of these different processes. But, you know, my gut feeling is that uh, there's a lot of rhetoric around putting Aboriginal people in the driving seat and, you know, we're actually doing that. So that's pretty exciting. 
And in terms of your work at Caritas Australia, it's a Catholic agency for international aid and development. How does this project that you're working on, the Aboriginal Carbon Fund, how does it compare to your other projects you've got going on in Australia? We've got a lot of... We have that similar sort of approach with our other um, partners in in our Australian program. They're very different. We have um, Jumpy, that desert weavers based out of Alice and work all across the central um, Australian desert. Oh, I love the Jumpy Desert Weavers. Yeah, I know. It's fabulous. Oh, you're one of the partners behind we're one, Yeah, them. we're one of their core partners. Oh, there you go. And Quiet so, you in know, the background, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Absolutely. We have a long-term relationship. We've worked with Jumpy for close to 10 years. That project really looks at providing um, quick cash for remote uh, Aboriginal women who, you know, have like 30 mouths to feed. So that's an incredible project. Um, people get to tell their beautiful uh, Jerkapa stories, so their traditional stories, and sing their stories while they're doing their weavings. Uh, you know, so it keeps culture alive. It provides opportunities for women and for young women uh, to earn a cash income. So that's an amazing project. We have another incredible project with Purple House who do remote dialysis work. And in, you know, remote communities, again, in that same sort of region, NPY lands, um, I can't say that. I can say NPY. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, great project. You know, there's a lot of people with kidney failure and they're based in remote communities, have no access or have to come into town for dialysis treatment. But Purple House have, um, well, created a different approach by uh, establishing mobile units trucks that go out into the remote communities and based out there for a number of days providing those dialysis um, patients with the treatment in their own country and you know people would actually rather be on their own country than coming into town for dialysis treatment so that's another incredible partner. Now getting back to the Aboriginal Carbon Fund uh, they've recently announced it signed a formal Indigenous to Indigenous agreement the South to South if you like with the First Nations Energy and Mining Council in British Columbia. Uh, what will be your role and the Caritas Australia's role uh, within this structure? Well, I think, um, you know, we're very much behind the scenes, but I think this whole um, framework that we've developed based on that Indigenous-led approach, like there's no reason why that can't also be shared internationally. And, you know, the more uh, people who are using this approach, both um, non-Indigenous and Indigenous, you know, for us, the better. We want to get it out there. We want to influence people that, you know, like the top-down, White fellas driving everything approach doesn't work, and you know if you, if you really want to see some positive change in um, indigenous communities, then you need to really embrace indigenous led approaches. Absolutely, self determination I think totally. is the yep. only way to go in some cases. It's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you see your particular role into the future in terms of um, your job as evaluators and building the capacity for uh, remote uh, located Aboriginal people on their country? Definitely there is a lot of um, support necessary before, you know, the skills um, in this area are developed. So we'll be behind the scenes again working with rangers. Um, Aboriginal Carbon Fund will have a key role as will other organisations that support the rangers in just being behind the scenes and um, supporting those rangers when they start to use these tools. And I would think that, you know, we all have an ongoing role in that capacity as well, just fine-tuning the tools as they develop, like offering that sort of soft support in the background. Nothing like this has been done in Australia before. What are your thoughts on that and how are you feeling about working on such a project uh, that's so innovative uh, for Aboriginal people? 
Oh, look, it, you know, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, my other colleague, Carla Sullivan, that I'm working with from that, that particular um, First Australians program at Caritas, we're both uh, M&E nerds. <laughs> so, you know, we yeah. love sort of M&E. We love um, how... What's M&E? Can I just oh, monitor, ask monitor, you then? Monitoring yeah. and evaluation. Okay, yeah. So, you know, we love understanding how change happens and analysing that. And, you know, we both kind of come from the same place where we think that... The people who are doing that monitoring and design have to be, you know, actually controlling that process. And unfortunately, that's not really the dominant paradigm in international development or, you know, um, remote Aboriginal community development. There is still very much a needs-based approach um, that focuses on gaps and problems and needs and then, you know, builds programs out of that. I mean, we're coming from a strength-based approach and we look at the um, talents and skills that already exist and we we build on that so you know we we want to um revolutionize how programming is conducted in remote communities so yeah i think we just continue to you know spread the word lisa why do you think this approach has never been used before in australia with our traditional owners well look i think that some people are definitely working in this space but you know we're the minority we kind of know who the other people are who have this approach And I think largely it's because it takes time. So, you know, you have to have long-term commitment and long-term relationships with partners. There's no one-size-fits-all. There's a lot of uh, accompaniment that's needed to really develop skills and confidence to be able to take control of things when you're in Aboriginal communities and you've got that history and legacy of colonisation. There's a big mindset that needs to be changed for people to actually feel that they can control this process. So, you know, there's a lot of um, support needed, but also political will. And when you have, I was reading something earlier today, some communities have like 55 different government projects that they're managing. Um, And some of those projects are like $1,000 grants and they have to write acquittals for all of those 55 projects and they're 15 months on average turnover so you can't roll out this sort of approach in a project that's only got the lifespan of 15 months. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me Kerry Lee Harding and you just heard there from Lisa McMurray from Caritas Australia one of the partners working closely with the Aboriginal Carbon Fund and early on in the program we heard from General Manager from the Aboriginal Carbon Fund Rowan Foley. To find out more information on the Aboriginal Carbon Fund, a national not-for-profit company building wealth for traditional owners through the ethical trade of carbon credits, you can go to their website at aboriginalcarbonfund.com.au. And if you've missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone number is 03 9419 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week with more Earth Matters.